Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Former President Trump testifies. He says he has no sympathy for the banks he defrauded because he says they made millions of dollars from deals they made with him. Find out why he says his assets were not overvalued. And Trump now leading President Biden in key battleground states. What states are they and what the new polling means for the 2024 race exactly one year away? Israel Defense Forces say they have now completely surrounded Gaza City and protesters in the Middle East making a statement against Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit. Congress once again facing a fast approaching deadline to avert a government shutdown. This time all eyes on new House Speaker Mike Johnson. How's he handling the very issue that led to McCarthy's downfall? And a father takes a plea deal for his son's alleged shooting spree. How prosecutors say he facilitated the deaths of seven people and whether he'll testify against his son. Former President Trump takes the stand. He was the only witness testifying today in the New York civil fraud trial. The judge ruled that he and his two sons inflated the value of his assets. But Trump has his own thoughts on the matter. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards reports. Donald Trump has completed his testimony, but not before telling the judge and the attorney general that this trial is a disgrace. He said the banks were not victims in this case because they made millions of dollars after making deals with his companies. And that the only reason why this case was ever filed is because of politics. So while Israel is being attacked, while Ukraine is being attacked, while inflation is eating our country alive, I'm down here and these are all political opponent attack ads by the Biden administration. Trump repeatedly testified that the property valuations were too low because they didn't include his brand value. But the state attorney said he wasn't interested in talking about brand value. He says Trump's assets were overvalued. On Monday, he focused on estimates from 2014 that showed some values lower than the number in the final statement. When he asked the former president why, Trump said he didn't know because he didn't prepare them. The numbers are much greater than on the financial statement. Uh, we've already proven that. They said mar a is worth $18 million. mar a is worth anywhere from probably 50 to 100 times more than that. So why were the valuations higher in the final statement than they were in the notes? Trump said there's no such thing as overvalued. He said that a property is as valuable as the next wealthy person who buys it. For example, he said a property he owns in New York City is in a prime location. So it's more valuable than the number in the 2014 statement because two companies want to buy it. But he isn't selling it. He said those companies would be willing to pay a lot more money for the property than the value that was placed on it. And that this is just one of many methods that are used to estimate value. Numerous times, Judge Arthur Angoran threatened to rule against Trump's testimony because his responses often became narratives. For example, Trump attacked the judge and the attorney general for bringing what he called a ridiculous case. And it's a terrible, terrible thing. These are political operatives that I'm going to be dealing with right now. Uh, you have a racist attorney general who made some terrible statements. And you see some more that came over the wires today. Uh, 
It's a very sad situation for our country. We shouldn't have this. The state attorney wrapped up his questioning before the end of the day. He plans to call Trump's daughter Ivanka to the stand on Wednesday. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Joining us now to offer his analysis of former President Trump's trial in New York, we have Mark Ruskin, former assistant district attorney in Brooklyn. He'll be exploring how serious this case is and what implications it could have. Mark Ruskin, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Hi, Tiffany. It's great to be here. Mark, to begin, former President Trump took the stand today in the New York fraud trial. How seriously should we take this case, given that a former president took the witness stand? I suggest that it's a very serious matter, in particular because it's the precursor to four criminal trials, which he's going to be subject to, it looks like now, for next year. I mean, this is a civil trial, not a criminal trial. But it's laying the groundwork for what could arguably be a consistent and persistent attack on Trump in order to weaken him prior to the elections for president next year. And on that note, the judge has imposed a gag order and Trump has been found guilty of violating that. But as you mentioned, we are heading into an election season. So there's the other argument that we should be hearing from the front runner of the GOP. How do you view this gag order? Well, I think it's fairly unusual, especially now that it's been extended to the attorneys as well as to Trump and others uh, related to the case. You know, there's a very sensitive area here as far as the First Amendment is concerned and the right to express free political speech. And uh, there's a careful balancing act which should be taking place uh, with regard to whether or not a gag order should be, have been imposed in the first place and should be enforced. Now, I would suggest that here the constitutional issues really outweigh the issues having to do with the individual case and that they should be a right for Trump and the others involved to express their opinions candidly and openly. And Mark, as you mentioned, this is a civil, not a criminal case. There are millions on the line in terms of this case. Trump is maintaining his innocence. He said today, quote, that he has more money than you could guess. What do you make of his stance? Well, in, in this case, I mean, while it sounds boastful, it's relevant to the issues here because He's being accused of undervaluing his assets in order to gain financial advantage, both him and, and his colleagues and his family. So stating that he has way more money would indicate that he has no need to uh, undervalue his assets uh, in order to gain advantage. So uh, I think his uh, comments are arguably really on point and relevant to the issues here. And on that note, one key argument that state attorneys are making is that President Trump valued the property as a private residence on Statements of Financial Condition, or FSCs. How does that argument play into this case? Well, these are issues, the issues that are being brought by the uh, prosecutors, by the state attorney general's office, which I suspect in an ordinary, with an ordinary defendant wouldn't even be raised. They're being, they're kind of digging for things to throw at them. And uh, so this is, you know, you just have one more item that's being utilized to uh, essentially paint him in a negative light. And one thing which I should point out is in a civil trial, 
there's a much lower bar to bringing charges into convicting than there is in a criminal trial. So here, essentially, the state and the anti-Trump uh, forces have a, a lower bar to meet in order to uh, accomplish their objectives, it would uh, seem to me. And on that note, where do you see this civil trial going compared to the criminal charges against the former president? Well, it seems to have—it's one of these things where there's a cumulative effect, there's, whether there's smoke, there must be fire type of effect, so that by having uh, civil charges brought against him by a state attorney general who was arguably very biased and campaigned on promises to prosecute someone who hadn't been charged with anything, uh, there's this cumulative effect, the civil trial plus criminal trials, to make it look uh, and to keep him busy, busy uh, and occupied with uh, important issues, which would deter him from providing a full uh, attention to the uh, political campaign and to uh, democratic process. A lot at stake here. Well, Mark Ruskin, thank you so much for your time. Some concerning signs for President Biden's 2024 campaign as new polling shows former President Trump leading in key swing states. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. A new poll by the New York Times shows that former President Trump is now leading President Biden in five out of the six most important battleground states for 2024. Specifically, Trump's leading in Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, all of which President Biden won back in 2020. In addition, a new CBS poll also released this weekend shows that more voters think they'll be better off financially if Trump wins in 2024, and that more voters also think it's Trump who's more likely to keep the U.S. out of a war overseas. And overall, the CBS News poll shows Trump at 51 percent, while Biden trailing at 48 percent among likely voters nationwide. Meanwhile, President Biden's campaign responded to these polls by saying that these predictions are way too early and that the Biden campaign can win by, quote, putting their heads down and doing the work. President Biden today touting investments under Bidenomics in Delaware. Watch. 16 with a B billion dollars here in the Northeast Party. 25 different projects. All to build the Northeast Carter from Boston to Washington. It's part of my agenda to invest in America. And while Biden and Trump continue to be in a very tight race, potentially among likely voters nationwide, the results from key swing states could really matter because, for example, back in 2020, Biden's victories in swing states like Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin were vital to his victory. All of these states were won by President Trump back in 2016. So now as President Biden seeks re-election, he needs to win back many of these swing states. While national polling right now shows that Trump could be back ahead. Back to you. The stakes are high in Virginia elections tomorrow. President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have endorsed nearly two dozen candidates. All 40 state Senate seats and 100 state House seats are up for grabs this year. A handful of competitive districts are expected to make the difference. Northern Virginia near Washington, D.C., Central Virginia near Richmond, and Southeast Virginia. 
In 2021, Republicans won a 52 to 48 majority in the House of Delegates. The GOP also swept every statewide office. Democrats hold a 22 to 17 majority in the state Senate. Republicans hope to gain full control of the state legislature. That would clear a path for Governor Glenn Youngkin to enact his agenda. Louisiana, Mississippi and New Jersey are also electing state-level politicians in a general election tomorrow. Israel's military operations in the Gaza Strip appear to be going as planned. The IDF has announced significant accomplishment as they seek to defeat Hamas terrorists. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has wrapped up his trip in the Middle East, but not without commotion. NTD's Jason Perry has the update. Israeli troops say they have now completely surrounded Gaza City. And moreover, they've also divided the entire Gaza Strip into two sections. Israel Defense's spokesperson Daniel Hagari on Sunday described the situation. Today there is a North Gaza and a South Gaza. Israeli forces have reached the coastline. They hold this line. The IDF also said that over the weekend, Israeli forces helped reopen a humanitarian corridor to allow civilians in the northern Gaza Strip to move south for their own safety. The IDF also released footage of military planes dropping leaflets urging Gaza residents to evacuate south. However, that might be easier said than done. The IDF on Sunday released a recorded conversation of an alleged Gazan resident who tried to evacuate to the south, but implied that Hamas terrorists turned him back around to the north. However, some Gazan residents have chosen to stay even after being warned to evacuate for their own safety. We are persistent. We are persistent. Whatever they do with us, we won't leave Al-Shifa Hospital. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with foreign ambassadors in Israel, and he offered some hope to the Gazan people. There is no substitute for victory. We will defeat Hamas. We will dismantle Hamas. We will offer the people of Gaza and the entire peoples of the Middle East a real future, a future of promise and hope. But this requires victory. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been meeting with leaders in the Middle East, including Turkey's foreign minister on Monday. Blinken said they discussed Palestinian civilian casualties and increasing humanitarian aid. Around the same time, pro-Palestine protesters stormed a U.S. base in Turkey, protesting Blinken's visit. Protesters also hit the streets of Baghdad on Sunday to protest Blinken's visit with Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani. There, Blinken addressed Iranian-backed terrorist groups attacking U.S. troops in Iraq. Following Blinken's visit, the Iraqi Prime Minister met with Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi in Iran. Now the Hamas terrorists who are at war with Israel are also backed by Iran. Jason Perry, NTD News. Once again, the clock is ticking to fund the government after a shutdown was barely averted in September. The issue was kicked down the road with a short-term funding measure that ultimately got former Speaker Kevin McCarthy ousted from his job. 
So how's new Speaker Mike Johnson handling this challenging task? Here's NTD's Melina Weisskopf with more from Capitol Hill. The House is returning to take up their appropriations bills right now. The House has passed seven appropriations bills. The Senate has passed around three, but Speaker Johnson over the weekend predicted that Congress would not be able to tackle all 12 of these appropriations bills by next Friday's deadline. Now the Speaker is proposing to pass a continuing resolution that is a short-term government funding bill that would expire sometime in January. But the question with Johnson's proposed continuing resolution is whether or not it would be a traditional one. He's also floating the idea of passing a laddered approach. That so-called laddered approach would be more complex. It would divide up this entire government funding bill to only extend funding for certain government agencies with different timelines. But considering how complex and intricate that would be, there is a question of whether or not that is doable, especially on such a short timeline. We're looking at right now just one week's time. Now the big question is how will Speaker Johnson be able to handle such a dicey topic as government funding and a continuing resolution, which is something that many Republicans are routinely opposed to. And this is also the very thing that was the last straw that got McCarthy ousted just a few weeks ago. But there is one big difference between Johnson and McCarthy. That is that Johnson seems to have more trust in the Republican Party, especially from those who were always skeptical of McCarthy. And one big example of that trust is the fact that Johnson did not have to make any concessions in order to take the speaker's gavel like McCarthy did. Here's how Chip Roy puts it. A limited government conservative that believes we ought to restrain and cut spending, that we ought to do our job uh, to secure the United States. And I think uh, he was clear about that. So uh, we have a lot of confidence that we're all on the same page about what we're trying to do. So it will be interesting to see how Republicans in the House are now voting on a CR under this new leadership. And remember, it's not as simple for Johnson as just getting his own party in line here. He also has to work with the Democrat-controlled Senate and President Biden in the White House to avoid a government shutdown come next week. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. An Illinois father pleaded guilty today. His son was accused of killing seven people at a 4th of July parade last year. Dozens were also wounded in the shooting. Robert Cremo Jr. was set to face trial today for seven counts of reckless conduct. His son was under 21 when he obtained the gun police say he used in the deadly shooting. Prosecutors said the father should not have signed his son's firearm ID application, knowing he was unfit to own a gun. The younger Cremo used the ID card to buy five guns between 2020 and 2021, including the one he allegedly used in the shooting. As part of the deal with prosecutors, Cremo has agreed to testify at his son's criminal trial if he's called upon. His son has pleaded not guilty to over a hundred criminal charges, including 21 counts of first-degree murder. This is at least the second time a parent has been prosecuted in connection with their children's alleged crimes. Coming up, Tyson Foods is recalling 30,000 pounds of chicken nuggets. We'll have details on what consumers found inside some of them. The latest development in AI wars. Elon Musk introduces a new chatbot called Grok. What makes it special? And another U.S. bank fails. NTD business host Don Ma tells us why it failed and how consumers are affected after the break.
Welcome back and check your freezer. Tyson Foods is recalling one of its most popular chicken items. NTD's Christina Corona has details. Tyson Foods is recalling approximately 30,000 pounds of its dino-shaped chicken nuggets after some consumers reported finding small metal pieces in their patties. These nuggets, which are packaged in 29-ounce bags, were manufactured on September 5th by the company located in Berryville, Arkansas. Tyson proactively contacted the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Food Safety and Inspection Service and decided to undertake the recall as a precautionary measure. The USDA said that there had been only one report of a minor oral injury associated with consumption of this product. To identify the affected nuggets, Subject to this recall, look for the code P7211 on the back of the package. These products were distributed to various distributors in the states of Alabama, California, Illinois, Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee, Virginia, and Wisconsin for further delivery to retailers. The USDA strongly encourages consumers with these nuggets in their freezers to either dispose of them or return them to the place of purchase. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. Elon Musk's new AI chatbot is out after just eight months in development. Musk calls it Grok. NTD's fake quarter has the details. Elon Musk has officially released Grok. XAI's new AI chatbot, the latest large language model to enter the AI wars, joining the likes of ChatGPT, Claude, Inflection, and Llama. What makes this really different and unique and quite exciting is it's pulling from near real-time data. Chris Duffy is the head of AI strategy at Adobe. He says Grok draws data from X, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Musk owns X, so it acts as an exclusive source of information only Grok can use, information that can be more up-to-date than what's on the rest of the internet. Musk posted a side-by-side -side example showing that Grok knows Joe Rogan wore a blonde wig during his interview with Musk on October 31st. Another AI program couldn't provide that information because it didn't have access to the latest data from X. XAI says Grok is modeled after The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a popular science fiction book series in which a main theme is the search for the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything. XAI says that Grok is therefore intended to answer almost anything. It wants Grok to maximally benefit all of humanity and be used by people of all backgrounds and political views. Musk has repeatedly said that OpenAI's ChatGPT has a far-left bias and that he wants to create a truth-seeking AI that counters it. Musk also believes AI could threaten humanity's existence, but is developing AI anyway. One of the best ways to uh, prevent some of the unintended consequences is to be part of the change. And so here uh, it's pulling from a lot of great uh, you know, leading experts uh, who helped craft this over the last four or five or so months, and I, I think it's a, a valid, worthwhile attempt into helping propel this category going forward. Duffy believes Musk's concerns are warranted, but says that we should still be optimistic, though cautiously so, about the future. Right now, only a limited number of verified X users can access Grok. In the future, it may become a feature of X Premium Plus, which is $16 a month. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Another U.S. bank has failed. On Friday, Citizens Bank in Sac City, Iowa, was shut down by the Iowa Division of Banking, a state government agency. We spoke with NTD Business host Don Ma for the details. 
Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, great to be here on this Monday evening. To begin, tell us more about this situation. So Citizens Bank is actually the fifth bank to fail in the U.S. this year. Uh, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation was uh, put in charge to protect the money of the bank's customers. So the full balance uh, of all deposit accounts from Citizens, Citizens Bank in Sac City, Iowa, has been transferred uh, to another bank. And this bank is called Iowa Trust and Savings Bank. Now, this bank will take care of all the money that was in Citizens Bank to ensure it's safe. So essentially, depositors of Citizen Bank will now become depositors of Iowa Trust and Savings Bank. And in addition to uh, taking over all the deposits from Citizens Bank, Iowa Trust and Savings Bank also agreed to buy nearly all of its assets as well. So uh, this means they're acquiring things like loans, uh, investments, and other holdings. And the two branches of Citizens Bank will now reopen as branches of Iowa Trust and Savings Bank today uh, during normal business hours. Wow. And does the bank's failure pose any systematic threat? Well, Tiffany, in this case, I don't think so, because uh, the bank doesn't have enough assets to pose uh, any real threat to the overall U.S. banking system. Citizens Bank had approximately $66 million in total assets and $59 million in total deposits. As of September 30th, uh, the FDIC estimates that the cost to the deposit insurance fund will be uh, around $14 million. Now, this will be a completely different story let's say if the bank had uh, over a bill a hundred billion dollars but you know at the same time I do think the Federal Reserve would not let a bank fail that had systemic risk uh, we would see the central bank probably uh, bailing them out and what led what was the cause that led to this failure so what we know right now for sure is that the bank uh, incurred significant loan losses but as for what those loans are exactly, it's hard to know for certain, but uh, I think it could be a number of different things. But one that seems to be getting some attention is that uh, the bank could have had too much exposure to bad trucking loans, actually. Uh, it's possible the bank was uh, making loans on very expensive trucks, uh, which was highly speculative. Uh, the last two years have been very difficult for the trucking industry. Uh, trucking companies, uh, large and small, have been going out of business. There's too much supply, not enough demand, too many trucks chasing too little freight. And I'll just want mention one more thing, Tiffany. Uh, even though uh, it seems like uh, bank failures are a big deal, they actually happen pretty often. Wow. Well, Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Tiffany. Coming up, how are young people forming their opinions on the Israel-Hamas war? A congressman says the social media app TikTok has a huge impact. Are Jewish students facing more danger on U.S. college campuses? A UMass student is arrested for allegedly attacking a Jewish student. Hit and run allegations at Stanford. Why are police investigating the case as a possible hate crime? and why some students are skeptical of the victim's story. And in analysis of President Biden's upcoming meeting with Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping, what is the Biden administration trying to achieve by meeting with Chinese officials? Stay tuned for more here on NTD News.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Former President Trump took the stand in the New York civil fraud case, where the judge has said he inflated his assets. Trump repeatedly testified that the property valuations were too low because they didn't account for his brand and other factors. A new poll by the New York Times and Siena College found that President Biden trails behind Trump in five of key battleground states. Respondents say they trust Trump more on the economy, foreign policy and immigration. Israeli troops said they have now completely surrounded Gaza City. They've also divided the Gaza Strip into two and opened up a humanitarian corridor for evacuations south. Are young people supporting Hamas because of TikTok? A congressman is now making that case, saying the U.S. should completely ban the Chinese platform. NTD's Arian Pazdar spoke with an expert on Chinese online propaganda. Congressman Mike Gallagher wrote an op-ed for the Free Press, saying many young Americans support Hamas because of TikTok. He cited a poll which says that over half of college-aged Americans say Hamas attacks on Israel on October 7th were justified. Gallagher wrote that a growing number of Americans rely on TikTok for their news. Today, TikTok is the top search engine for more than half of Gen Z. Official numbers from TikTok show that posts with the hashtag FreePalestine are getting around 17 times more views than posts with the hashtag StandWithIsrael. This may come to no surprise as former leader of the Palestine Liberation Organization Yasser Arafat visited China 14 times before he died. He met with CCP leaders including Mao Zedong and Jiang Zemin. Congressman Gallagher wrote, We know for a fact that the CCP uses TikTok to push its propaganda and censor views that diverge from the party line. And he concludes by saying that completely banning TikTok in the U.S. protects our public square from the surveillance, malign influence, censorship and propaganda of a foreign adversary. Now to learn more about China's online propaganda campaign surrounding the Israel-Hamas war, I spoke with Jake Denton. He's a research associate in the Tech Policy Center with the Heritage Foundation. Denton tells me China is using this war to emerge as a more influential power than the United States. Take a look. So when they have the ability to either diminish uh, the role of the United States or to, you know, target another Western country, it's to their advantage to push uh, content that promotes the alternative view, one that makes China look more respected. And Denton says he agrees with the congressman that TikTok should be banned completely. He also warns if Congress doesn't take the necessary steps, it could have a long-lasting impact on the United States, being shaped by information coming from the Chinese Communist Party. What that results in is a generation that doesn't value the United States, that really doesn't like our own way of government. And so what you have is potentially a generation of citizens who identify closer with China's worldview than our own. And there's no telling of how that ends for us. He says the United States is already seeing the impact of this among young Americans and that it will only get worse if things don't change. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. An alleged anti-Semitic attack at a university here in the U.S. A student was arrested after reportedly punching a Jewish student and spitting on an Israeli flag. The incident took place at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Its Hillel Jewish Student Organization published a statement saying it had organized an event calling for the return of the hostages being held by Hamas. 
Toward the end of the event, a student reportedly walked through the crowd, making obscene gestures at participants. He later returned to the site and allegedly punched a Jewish student who was holding an Israeli flag, then took the flag and spit on it. UMass police arrested and later released the suspect, not allowing him to return to campus. The Anti-Defamation League reports a year-over-year increase in anti-Semitic incidents of almost 400 percent. An alleged hit-and-run on a California university campus. Law enforcement has opened a hate crime investigation, but some students are skeptical of the victim's story. NTD's David Lamb visits the campus to hear more. Tensions rise in university campuses. Here at Stanford, we have a group supporting Israel. On the other side, a group supporting Palestinians. And some students feel that they're threatened and harassed after demonstrating. And unfortunately, one student was involved in a hit-and-run incident, and some are calling it a hate crime. Authorities opened a hate crime investigation after an Arab Muslim student was hit while walking. The private university says the incident was reported to police before 2 p.m. Friday. According to Stanford, the victim said the driver made eye contact with the victim, accelerated and struck the victim, and then drove away while shouting, expletive, you people. The suspect is described as a, quote, white male in his mid-twenties with short, dirty blonde hair and a short beard and drove a black SUV. The victim, Abdul Wahab Omira, said, My hope is to ignite a spark of empathy, a desire for change, and a call to action to foster a society where love overpowers hate. A student said that Omira is not involved in the campus Palestinian demonstration, but he visited the victim in the hospital, saying he was in physical pain. Unfortunately, it wasn't something that was coming completely out of the blue because as students, we were already concerned about our safety. People calling us terrorists, uh, people uh, saying, oh, we'll report you guys to the FBI because you support terrorism. I'm the first to condemn Hamas when they do something wrong. What is right is right and what is wrong is wrong. However, as for the hit and run, the Stanford Review reports that the victim is referred to as a pathological liar by students who know the victim and concerned that the story could be fabricated. Uh, personally, I feel pretty safe, but I can only speak as like a, an Asian male on the campus. Upon receiving the campus hit and run email, one student told us she was shocked and students condemned the reckless behavior. CHP is currently investigating. In Stanford, California, David Lamb, NTD News. President Biden is set to meet with Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the APEC Forum in San Francisco later this month. We spoke with Anders Kaur, publisher of the journal Political Risk, for his ideas on what this meeting could accomplish. Anders Kaur, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. To begin the upcoming summit between President Biden and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping in San Francisco has been causing quite a buzz. This is as there's tensions between the two superpowers. Some are seeing this as a way to ease those tensions. Now, you are arguing that this meeting shouldn't take place. Why? Xi Jinping is going into the meeting with a bargaining advantage. Um, and this is a very deep issue in democracies because uh, President Biden, of course, needs an agreement um, to make himself look like an effective international statesman uh, to his voters. But Xi Jinping has no voters, so he, he doesn't need an agreement 
in the same way that Biden needs an agreement. So that's going to make Biden more desperate going into the meeting and more likely to give up major issues, um, for example, on the economy. Um, Secretary of Treasury Yellen is already meeting with um, uh, her Chinese counterpart and giving indications that she's going to give in on things by saying things like, uh, the United States is not trying to hold China's economy back. But of course, China's economy is what drives its military spending and its threat to the United States and the free world. And this meeting comes on the heels of a slew of cabinet officials, U.S. officials going over to China for talks. Why is the U.S. side pushing so hard when the Chinese side doesn't seem to be? They're looking for this electoral win, this you know uh, propaganda win for President Biden. If he can get a meeting, if he can get the appearance of progress with China, that would be a huge win for him. But it's it's unlikely to be real progress. Um, we're very likely to give up uh, tariffs, for example. Uh, the Trump tariffs have been incredibly effective against China. Um, Biden kept them initially because be politically inconvenient to, to get rid of them, and they're just a good policy anyway. And, uh, you know, Secretary Yellen has already seen, I would, I would expect, there are analysts out there who expect that, uh, that the Biden administration will give up the tariffs, which would be a disaster. And if that happens, what would that look like in action? What would be the repercussions there? You'd get a bigger flood of Chinese goods than we already have coming into the U.S., more deindustrialization of the United States, fewer American jobs, um, and uh, you know, it, and a decrease in government revenue because, of course, tariffs uh, provide government revenue. So um, there, you know, the the counterpoint is that they increase prices. Um, however, a Goldman Sachs study showed that they only increase prices. Uh, 25 a, a quarter of a percent which is 25 cents on a on a on a hundred dollar toaster for example so then it sounds like americans would be paying even more um given all that's at stake here especially with the tensions we're seeing globally and especially between the u.s and china how should the u.s be approaching this meeting just not have the meeting what is the message we should be sending I don't think we should have scheduled the meeting or pushed for the meeting to begin with. I think we should show a very tough stand against China and say that we're never going to meet with a genocidal dictator that is not taking strong action on, for example, fentanyl that kills 70,000 Americans every year. Um, you know, it's it's atrocious to meet with someone who's refused to cooperate on on fentanyl. Just that issue alone should should uh, make a, a, a meeting between our president and Xi Jinping a non-starter. And in your piece, you mentioned that the CCP should be considered a criminal entity and an adversary of the U.S., not a competitor. How would that distinction change the way the U.S. does policy when it comes to the Chinese regime? I think we should gradually, essentially, criminalize um, the activity of, of what they're doing. I'd, arguably, they're already something like a terrorist organization or a mafia-like organization in terms of the Chinese Communist Party. I think we need to start dealing more directly with the Chinese people who are good and who you know, need our support. 
Taiwan needs our support, Hong Kong needs our support. Um, but our focus on negotiating with the CCP, I think, is like negotiating with the mafia when it's the neighborhood that the mafia rules over that needs our help. It says uh, some China experts say a win-win situation with China is a double win for China and a lose for everyone else. Um, given this, though, what is the concrete steps that the U.S. must take? Is it to label them as a criminal organization? What is that next step that we need to do right now? I think we need to gradually increase sanctions and uh, tariffs on China, and we need to encourage our G7 and NATO partners to do the same. We need to have a very coordinated approach. China sees itself as a legitimate nation state, so it's going to be very hard um, to essentially remove them um, and democratize China. But I think that has to be the goal. A lot at stake here. Well, Anders Kaur, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, the Shanghai Altani sweepstakes are about to begin as baseball's free agency starts. We'll have how his injuries affect negotiations when we return. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, we welcome NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty of sports to talk about from the weekend, but let's start in the NBA and their new in-season tournament. What do you make of the timing of it, given the regular season started just two weeks ago? Yeah, I, I think it's their attempt to steal some headlines uh, during football season. You know, the NBA season starts in October, but they take a back seat to football until they end in January. Basically, how this tournament is going to work is kind of set up like the World Cup. You'll have a group stage, the knockout round, and the semifinals and finals will be in Vegas uh, in December. Um, but how this is going to go, I really think this is... Um, a very creative way by the NBA to try to grab some headlines. We'll just have to see how it works, but I like what they've done here. And speaking of which, plenty of football action over the weekend, including Michigan, despite the ongoing NCAA investigation. Is there any talk of the NCAA not allowing them into the postseason this year? No, the, the NCAA probably won't even act before the postseason starts. They're usually very slow on these things. What's going on right now is the rest of the Big Ten is trying to get the Big Ten commissioner to act, you know, if they are guilty. But I would think he would be very loath to do anything before the NCAA finishes their investigation. Of course, the biggest question still hasn't been answered, and that is what or who hired this investigative firm to give this evidence to the NCAA. Because if it was from a rival school, I think this would be the ultimate step in a rivalry. And now moving to the pro game, the AFC, four of the best teams squared off with Cincinnati beating Buffalo and Kansas City topping Miami. What do you think is the significance of those wins? Well, at this point, maybe just for tiebreakers down the road. But certainly for Cincinnati, this is our fourth straight win. They look great. Joe Burrow looks healthy. That offense is humming. For Buffalo, I, I don't get what's going on. This is a third loss in five games. They've now dropped to third in the, their division, at least temporarily. Meanwhile, in the NFC, there was a big game there, Philly beating Dallas. The Eagles, they look like they are ready to head back to the Super Bowl. And now shifting gears to baseball, free agency begins today, and everybody wants two-way star Shohei Otani. How quickly do you think he'll sign? 
I don't think it's going to be right away. I think these are going to be complicated negotiations because of his all, all of his pitching injuries. You know, everybody wants him, but maybe only a third of the teams can realistically afford him. Six months ago, he was probably looking at $500 million. Now another major pitching injury later is probably at less than $500 million. And it is, no matter what, it's going to be a lot of risk uh, because if he can't pitch, he becomes a very expensive hitter. Ultimately, I think he ends up still on the West Coast, maybe with the Dodgers or possibly back with the Angels. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.